Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Grant to the show. Hi, Grant. Hi, Bill. Nice to be here. Grant, you first came on the show on December 17, so I'm glad to have you back. But also, I'd like to hear about how life's changed for you and and particularly how it's changed through uh, COVID-19 and beyond. But first, let's go back and talk about recovery and, you know, growing up and how you got into GA, I guess. So what was life like for you sort of growing up? Growing up was, I'm going to say it was very different. That word different is, is a key word for me, given I was adopted at birth um, of part Maori uh, and part Caucasian descent and adopted into a Caucasian family outside of a, a Maori family unit. So when I say different, you know, there was this genetic disposition and this, this innate feeling of being of not identifying or not belonging in some ways. There's in some ways something missing, Bill. And um, I think that was part of my narrative last time we spoke. So how how did that difference uh, show itself in your early life? Uh, it, it showed up with, I guess, a sense wanting to overachieve academically and sportingly in order to receive love. I was a very quiet, very quiet kid, but you know, I look, uh, I look very different than most of my family. Well, I look very different than all of my family with the darker skin and, and obviously not catching on to that reasonably quickly as a youngster. It, there were some very, well, I would say, um, difficult times because I, I was very unsure of myself. So were you able to find friends that would carry you through? I did find myself being a fairly popular a popular child and as I grew up through adolescence as well, um, probably through, again, my sporting and academic achievements and I was always a very polite child, but I, you know, I, still, I struggled to find a voice and I have a very quiet father and my mum's on the opposite spectrum. <laughs> and, um, so finding my place in the family unit with a brother that was five years older too, getting very, very different, was, was very difficult. But yes, I've, I, I had a lot of friends, but again, still not many friends that I really wanted to let in close. And um, that reflected that sense of me not really knowing who I was at that point in time. Yeah. Your family um, that you grew up in, was there any alcohol, drugs or gambling involved? No, none whatsoever. Although my understanding as I've even grown over the last few years is, is an awareness that perhaps on my birth mother's side, that there was some sort of history of alcoholism with perhaps her father and probably more, more to the point, um, some uh, generational, intergenerational trauma, perhaps from my mother's side, that may have been brought through by her, which in, in some ways, yeah, definitely affected me on an emotional level. 
and, and this is part of the part of the story, I guess, for me, where it's changed. Where you know, I've taken stock of some interger- intergenerational trauma, epigenetic trauma, um, and that whole dialogue around nature versus nurture <laughs> in the environment that I found myself in, which was still very loving, but in a different way, and perhaps where some of my needs weren't met. Yeah. So s- school was pretty good for you, obviously. But did that change once you sort of got into secondary school? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it did. Like I'd gone from being, you know, a very high achiever, straight A student, was top of the class, to when I high school, I was still very much in that in that same space, top stream a year ahead. And I managed to stay in that space all the way to high school. But my performance in all areas started to drop off as I went through adolescence and. I guess probably experienced some other emotions as I was growing up and, you know, peer pressure, you know, a little bit of status in there. And again, not knowing really who I was, my background, um, why am I feeling these things and some very clearly unidentified and therefore untreated trauma relating to my adoption childhood and you know, as I, and adolescence time as I grew up. Yeah. Yeah, adolescence is a really difficult time for most, you know, most alcoholics start drinking 13, 14, drug addicts around the same time. Yeah, I think a lot of people who have addictions have some form of inability to cope or traumatic experiences during adolescence. So was there anything traumatic for you in adolescence? Not necessarily in adolescence, but as I've peeled back the layers, and again, this is very different from last time we spoke, Look, I've done a lot of inner child work through the help of a psychologist over this last seven and a half year period. Yeah, going back to even my earliest recollections of childhood beyond my adoption, so breaking the leg at three, and probably my my first real thoughts about why am I so different at seven. Yeah, my father had um, a massive stroke at 38 when I was eight too. And look, yeah, certainly a significant event, but didn't really... You know, it's not really hasn't really come up on my emotional roadmap, but if I dig a little bit deeper down on it, like it still has had some some impact on me in some form. But other than that, nothing nothing that I really identified in this process of trauma that had occurred through the adolescent period, other than not being able to identify my own emotions and deal with them appropriately and adequately. Yeah. So, what about relationships? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few um but my relationships um definitely within my family unit you know I was always kind of looked after and protected uh, I was very clearly very different again probably some emotional needs that I really needed and wanted were not fulfilled no no fault or blame of anybody else but then as I um as I matured into a young adult um when I entered the world into dating which I wasn't really dating I I, I chose to be in a relationship at the age of about 19, and, and that relationship sort of lasted 13 and a half years, married for four and a half years, and basically that person filled a void in some ways of being the mother to my inner child as well, as well as a partner, a lover, and covered all of those, you know, all of that realm of, uh, you know, of being in a relationship with someone, and, and it wasn't very healthy. You know, I've had quite a few subsequent to that. Where, where the relationships where I carried a lot of that trauma through because at that point in time it wasn't identified and it wasn't being treated. And it took a long time to get there to understand my trauma map. So effectively, 
regardless of the type of relationship I had with anyone, there was always some sort of facade there and always you know, a number of layers to be peeled back to reveal you know, my true self or me at wholeness. So in, in relationships, you've got to share some of yourself. So people with addictions or compulsions often find it difficult to share much because of their, I guess, their hidden hidden life. So was that a problem for you too in relationships being open? It, it was. It was for a long time, yeah. It was up until I really understood parts of my background, especially the trauma part. But, yeah, look, I'm very reluctant to be open, vulnerable, and therefore the honesty piece there, you know, what was missing a lot because, again, if I don't know who I really am and identify and um, there's no way I can transmit that, you know, safely and securely and in, in a healthy way in any sort of relationship. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's very difficult. So relationships give you a lot of, I guess, stability so did you find that a, a stable period of your life? Yeah, look, when I look back, um, absolutely. Uh, like I have, I have very fond memories today of, of all my experiences, largely because I've been able to square everything away that I felt I really needed to. But, yeah, look, I, I felt definitely a sense of stability. But, again, you know, if I'm being completely honest with my inner myself at those points in time, I'm still very, very much struggling inside emotionally. And, you know, being someone who identifies as an addict and an addict in recovery, you know, it's a massive difference between today and then. But the stability that I experienced back then was nothing even remotely close to where I am today. It was still part of the facade and the delusional thinking. So what came first for you? Did you get involved with alcohol, drugs or gambling? Um, gambling came first, but even preceding that was more maladaptive coping mechanisms around um, around sex and sexuality, um, procrastination, gaming. Now, I will say eating at some point in time as well, but look, gambling was the one thing that's, that manifested very, very quickly and, and, and became a, a constant you know, from the very moment that I started with my own TAB account at 18. You know, it kind of it really took off. But I still recall having a gambling experience, say, when I was seven, when my grandfather perhaps took me to the races for the first time. He placed a bet for me and I won. And I think even back then, you know, I, I still recall you know, the early beginnings of, you know, something that gave me some sort of high or escapism or, you know, escapism or avoidance from many things that was going on. Yeah, I, I think it's a diversion from what you're thinking or worried about. It just gives you that euphoria, yeah. Yeah, so I was talking to an alcoholic on last week's show and he was talking about retreating into eating as a child because he was being bullied. So was eating eating a retreat for you? Look, no, no, I wasn't. I mean, I think when I mentioned eating before, that's probably more as I've got a little bit older. Yeah, I had no, no issues with that sort of growing up and through adolescence. But as I become a little bit older, I've experienced those things too. Again, in, in a rigorous uh, honesty perspective on my maladaptive coping mechanisms. So starting gambling at seven years old to get the, I guess, get the hit. So was there any interest in it after that until you opened your own account of the TAB? Yeah, in between times, look, I know that, I, I, even right now, I recall 
experiences where you know, I'd want to play you know, either computer games or arcade-type games in particular. Yeah, there was always a fascination with, I think, yes, some, something that, that gave me that, yeah, that sense of euphoria. But again, it was all to escape and avoid what was really going on inside that I, I really had no idea about, to be honest. I couldn't put my finger on it, not at that young age. What was the feeling like then? Was it an escape? Yeah, it, it was because I think when I first went to my psychologist and identified, you know, the feeling of maybe at seven, really knowing I was different, like it was authentic for me. I mean, it could be just part of my story, you know, my recollection of where I am right now, but I, I didn't want to be told I was adopted either. Like I clearly knew that I was different. I clearly knew that, you know, I didn't really belong or didn't feel safe or secure or loved there was something behind the scenes that was just chipping away at me as a youngster okay so how did you get involved with with gambling and what stimulated you to open a tab account at 18 full-blown escapism and avoidance again you know the age of 18 like i still recall even going to the jp's house to get the document signed to open it up you know i was premeditated i already knew that i was going to go and do it yeah, from there, it just grew legs. You know, I don't have a lot of recollection of that time, you know, beyond signing that account, and I don't know exactly what it really looked like, but I'd started, and that's the thing. You know, I'd commenced on that path to nurturing these really poor neural pathways towards full-blown addiction. <laughs> so what was it that attracted you in the TAB? I mean, I've always, I was always very mathematically minded, numbers minded, colours minded. I think there was some, there's probably some sort of deeper attraction to the numbers, the analytical. I'm not sure if it was the money side of things at all because, again, it's all emotional. I just heavily identify as it being avoidant and escapism. And I think, like I just said, I think it's probably more of a numbers thing, a, a chance to win things. It's not, it's not entirely clear, but those are the things I'm throwing out right now. So did your gambling add to your problems? Very much so. And in every way, shape or form, you know, be it personal, employment, you know, relationship-wise, legal, in every, in every way, shape and form, it's, it, it affected my life and it became progressively worse as I got worse. Um, the reprieves, if I had any, were very brief, and it was a you know, just a very futile existence as I got sunk deeper and deeper into addictive behaviours. When did you think that it was becoming a problem? How early? I would say definitely in my um, early twenties. Yeah, that's when I have. I do have some clear recollections of some experiences that were on the brink of insanity. Yeah, you know, very, 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 very poor thinking. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. 
it's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Uh, today I'm talking with Grant, and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Grant, we're finished talking about the effects of your gambling were pretty noticeable early on. So what's it like to realise that gambling's a problem and is adversely affecting your life, but you continue doing it? So what's what's that like and what's what's a day in the life of a gambler who's getting worse feel like? Yeah, my experience is that you're, you're caught in this really horrible cycle of massive swings where the window window of tolerance, you know, swinging up into um, uh, hypervigilant states and then down to very, very low spots of, you know, guilt and shame and remorse. You know, all those promises, oh, I'll never do this again, uh, and, and trying to cover up all these lies and, you know, not being able to square away facts. Like, it, it's a, I think I said it before, like it's a very futile existence and, yeah, it just gets worse. There's no there's no way out of it unless there is significant psychic change, like a complete change of mindset. Yeah. So, how did your partner? I think you said you were with her for, or knew her for thirteen years or so. So, how did your partner cope with the fact that you were gambling and obviously had a second life that you were not sharing? Yeah, that's a really good, really good question because again, it's only my experience of observing her, her reactions and. Look, for someone who did nothing but hold an amazing, loving space, you know, all the highest and finest qualities that a human being can actually possess, she did incredibly well, but very tough, very tough. Again, you know, seeing someone that you love unconditionally destroy themselves and, and therefore everything else around you to a certain extent, well, it was very difficult to, to bear witness to. You know, I mean, even just what I've just said, you know, I don't know, you know, the full extent of what of, of the emotions that she really felt, but I got to see the pain and the suffering too that I had caused and project onto everybody else, including her. So very, very difficult. 
Yeah, it's, it's one of the real tragedies of, of being in, in, in full addiction mode and not in recovery and finding a solution for it. Yeah. So how did that affect your relationship? Well, in the end, ultimately, we separated and divorced. And I think, uh, I think that was, I spoke about that last time too. And again, it reflects that I hadn't even made the rooms of GA at that time. I hadn't sought any help whatsoever. And there are so many lessons that I've taken out of that, out of you know, being in a relationship and identifying that I've got a problem, but yet not doing anything about it. You know, there's not a lot of good stories that will come out of doing, you know, taking that action or inaction. Yeah, families are often adversely affected by compulsive people and often they don't appreciate the impact because the gambler or the addict sees them as being in the way and they're in they're between them and their gambling, say, and really, you know, they're just part of the problem or another part of the problem. What about work? Could you could you work and gamble effectively? I considered myself a very high functioning addict, and so yeah, I did. But was my work effort affected? Yes, yes, from both um, an efficiency and ambition perspective. And look, before um, I think the most poignant story here I can share was that I was in a role from 2012. This is around the post separation the separation time and I was dismissed for gross misconduct for falsely signing some documents on behalf of a senior um, staff member. You know, that is the culmination of, you know, of being in full addiction mode, gambling, total unmanageability um, and not asking, not reaching out for help, you know, being, finding myself in this position where, you know, I'm bordering, I mean, I'm already insane. My decision-making already represents insanity, you know, and I'm, I'm very much embarking on a pathway to prison or death as well as the literature sort of states. To take that action, there must have been a, a serious driver behind it. So was it money? No. Again, at that point in time, my inability to identify my emotions, sit with them, regulate them, share them and you know, you'll be able to square them away, be, be able to be completely honest with myself about what it is that I'm actually feeling and why and be able to cope with it. My gambling addiction was the symptom of you know, a, a far greater problem, a far greater emotional problem, which is the absolute root cause. And that root cause, again, is, is unidentified or untreated trauma. Yeah, definitely it caused financial problems relationship, marital, employment, legal, all those things. But that's where I take it back to for me. Right. So do you want to talk about the untreated trauma bit, that what the, the thing that was causing you this great angst? Definitely. It's, it's, it's been the real key to my recovery, even though it's been a bit stop-start at times. But So at the very root of my addictive behaviours was the fear, well, well, fear itself, but mostly around rejection, abandonment, and fear of not being loved, and which stemmed from my adoption. It was also kind of uh, cultivated a bit further by not quite having probably some of the, yeah, some of the emotional needs, my, my needs being met when I was young as well, probably the, the, not the right support perhaps, 
but again, I had no I had no idea about where I'd come from and why. So I, I developed a lot of what's this, the cycle for me was yeah. There's there's some triggering events. There's some negative thoughts. You know, there is you know, beyond the negative thoughts. You know, there's an emotional response. There's some physical symptoms, and then there's you know behavioural responses. And that was kind of the cycle that really just took shape and just built and built and built up over time. Especially when you know I'm I'm doing all this men- this mental gymnastics in my head around why was I why was I given up? You know, why was my family like this? Why do I not know who I am? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So really stuck in a position of irritability, restlessness, discontentment around who am I in identity. Yeah, obviously you're in a lot of distress, but what what was the thing that caused you to start looking for to reaching out? There must have been, was there some event that caused you to go, oh my God, it's too much? Yeah, well, when I lost, when I lost my job you know, back in 2013, and my employer at the time were so very, very kindly helped me. I mean, they, they could have done, they could have gone a different path, but they, they put me in the direction of my psychologist and they provide some support there and they provide some other support to me too. So I found a psychologist. At that point in time too, I made a call. I made a call to, I think it was the GR hotline. A woman answered the phone and directed me to a meeting. Told me where it was, what time it was. And I showed up. You know, I had my first, I had my first GA experience. What was that like to talk to other people who had a problem with gambling and may have had similar identity issues to you, uh, being, I guess, sort of lost? So was that comforting to you to know that other people were similarly afloat? Yeah, look, I, I, I clearly remember aspects of my first meeting and walking into the room a bunch full of largely blokes and sitting down, hearing people share. And I did identify, I did identify with a sense of belonging. You know, people were very kind, outreached hands, you know, shaking your hand. People were showing interest in you, you're a new member. And look, I had the courage to share on my first night too. And, you know, I was a blubbering mess. <laughs> it was very, I was so upset. I felt like a broken down dog and I was, I was crying all the way through it. But I, I had it with them at a share anyway. Like I knew I was in the right place and I identified, but it didn't mean that I hung around as well. Like, you know, it was, that, that was my first experience. People said, keep coming back. But it, it did start off my journey from a GA perspective. Yeah. So why did you not continue at that point? You know, what was your thought? I mean, I mean, I can't re- recall exactly the, sort of the, the timings of when I came in and out and what was going on in my life at the time. Again, from my own experience, given the amount of trauma that I that I had underneath, like even at the at, at the time of turning up to my first meeting, like it wasn't enough, and it still represented how, how I feel about recovery today from a holistic point of view. You know, I, I turned up to GA, and yeah, I came in and out. Did I work programmed to the best of my ability? No. There was many, many things, but I was still struggling deep down inside because I needed to really do some hard grafting work uh, within um, some real rigorous honesty. And I just wasn't ready. You know, it was so compelling. I think for, for, my, for my own sake, you know, my, my story, the amount of stuff that I've really had to peel back and understand 
was always going to take a long time. But again, you know, I'm grateful for finding that, having that first experience and you know, finding my way back there. So how long did it take you to get back to GA and, and why did you think going back to GA was a good idea? I've got all the experience behind me to suggest that I needed something in my life that was going to provide a form of connection to like-minded people that I could share some experiences with because it's not something you can do with people you meet on the street and your family unless they've got some experience of it themselves or unless they, yeah, they're inclined to want to hold a really kind, loving space for it. But there's no substitute for someone who's gone through the same stuff you can identify. What gave you the idea that GA would do that for you? My thoughts on, on addiction is that addiction is a disease of isolation and you know, the antidote to that is connection. When, I'm in, when I've been in GA, again, the times where I've been in and out, and then you know, I've been connected to this wonderful group of people that you know, fundamentally we're all the same. You know, we can share lots of similarities about our stories and can identify our recoveries all look very different or all look different to a certain extent. It's connection. You know, it's a safe, safe space to be open and vulnerable. Again, look, it took me a long time to take to the program in deeper ways. That, that, that has also been a process. It's been progress, never perfection. But again, you know, there are many things that exist outside of that GA space that, in my case, have needed to be addressed and implemented to ensure that that foundation, which GA has ultimately provided, as well as my psychologists and my sessions, to strengthen my recovery from a holistic position. So does your psychologist support GA as a principle? Yeah, she does. Well, she, 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 she supports me and, you know, I, I identify as you know, that GA has been a big part, a big part of my recovery, a fundamental piece, but it's a piece. There's only so much there in terms of my roadmap, emotional roadmap that GA can cater for. But in terms of the people contact who, who I can identify with and connect with and I'm sure we'll get into it after, but it's global for me. Like I have contacts everywhere. It's it's a support network that is vast. And then again, if you've got an open mind and open heart and allow it to wash over you and work the program, the benefits are incredible. Yeah, and I think that, that covers cross fellowship as well. People, you know, people in one fellowship are quite accepting of people in another fellowship because it's the same it's the same process. It's, you know, being overwhelmed and coming out the other side. Yeah, well, look, I, I identify as an addict first. Um, and, look, I've attended, um, look, I'm not an alcoholic, but I've attended AA meetings, and I actually did the steps through AA Arch to Freedom as well because I wanted to take it back to the very beginning of fellowship and not have it watered down in any way. Yeah, I, I, I identify definitely in cross-fellowship. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we'll take another short break there. For years, our government has subjected people seeking asylum to torturous conditions. The Minister for Home Affairs was supposed to care for them, but instead they suffered enormous physical and psychological harm. Now, those refugees are fighting for accountability and justice. On their behalf, the National Justice Project is taking legal action. 
against the government for negligence and for breaching their duty of care. To support 50 asylum seekers in their fight for justice against the Minister for Home Affairs, please donate at justice.org.au. The National Justice Project is a 3CR supporter. corner of the land. Womankind, Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, today I'm talking with Grant and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gambles Anonymous. So Grant, you've been in GA over a number of years, as you said, coming and going. So have you found the last few years more difficult given the, the advent of COVID and the restrictions in movement and the restrictions in actually getting to meetings and stuff? So what's, what's the last few years been like for you? If I'm being rigorously honest, it's been tumultuous. And I say that for a number of reasons. You know, last time we spoke back in 2017, I completed the steps and, and started sponsoring. And I think as we spoke before, like I started a bit of a travel odyssey around the world and around Australia. And therefore that made getting to me a lot more difficult, although I did a lot of regional ones. But I was still doing a lot of work in between that time and when I, when I do one of my thorough inventories not, not so long ago, I tried to recall one of the last meetings that I, one of the last meeting, physical meetings I attended. And I think it was back in February 2018. During that time, you know, between, between then and now, look, I've experienced a, a significant period of abstinence. But again, going back to this emotional roadmap, I was triggered by an event that occurred in March 2019 and where I'm effectively, I completely abandoned myself. And I found myself on this slippery road, you know, having again, these negative thoughts, these emotional responses, starting to experience some physical symptoms and then behavioral responses start to come back in. Yeah, I had significant relapse in March, 2020 uh, in terms of gambling, you know, and in that period of time, Again, you know, I was in a relationship where, you know, I'm fully aware of my trauma roadmap, but and I, I won't speak about the other person at all um, because it's 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 not my place. But I'll speak from my perspective in that. Was I really looking after myself to the best of my ability from a spiritual, well, from a holistic, we'll say holistic perspective? And the answer is no. Um, there were many things I was trying, um, but again, you know, I. 
I started to experience that spiritual malady coming back and it progressively got worse. And I slipped up again through an emotional inadequate and inappropriate response to life. So was gambling the first thing you reached for? No, no, no. Again, that's why I probably wanted to say that um, in terms of addictive behaviours, I mean, procrastination, there was some, you know, uh, gaming, eating, things of a sexual nature as well, again, which I had previously identified through my psychologist too. So uh, gambling wasn't the first thing, but it got me. Yeah, it got me. You no, know, well, no, I didn't get me. Well, I chose to go back there you know, and, and surrender my powerlessness you know, to the illness. So did you gamble any differently than you had when you stopped? I want to say that I picked up where I left off, which is commonly commonly said. And it was an act of insanity too. It was, it was post a massive argument you know, I, I'd had with my um, fiancé or fiancé to be at the time. Yeah, like underneath the surface, there was a lot of a lot of emotional stuff going on that was not being treated uh, properly, or not. And, and to a certain extent, from the other party, like I, I wasn't really aware of what was going on there. But it's not on them; it's on you know what I choose to do is on me. If you're not applying you know, spiritual principles or holistic principles in your life to the best of your ability on a day to day basis, when you identify as an addict. It's a very, very difficult place to uh, to exist, you know, to be happy, joyous and free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not what they do. It's my reaction to what they do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very hard situation when you realise that you, because it's about control. You want to be able to control things and you can't. And it's, yeah, it's it's not a good place to be. So where did your gambling take you this time? Um, where it took me this time was the dissolution of a relation of of this relationship back in late uh, mid mid September. And look, I found myself, you know, leaving the relationship home you know, in a in a hotel facility outside of the quarantine hours. I did have suicidal ideation. Again, it's just the rigorous honesty of I mean, you know, for a moment. But instead, this is this might sound very strange. But I actually found a sense of freedom to being away from an environment, you know, where I knew I had I knew I had absolutely no control over the other person, place, or things that was there. Like all I had really control over was me, and I knew what to do. I reached out for help, you know, from an employment perspective, and you know, even like I've documented the last 126 days for me, you, you know, and I, I go back and I know it was sort of day two when I found myself actually um, in this hotel. And I, for some reason, I just switched straight back into my recovery mode and accessing what I call my high power, God of my understanding. And yeah, some of the principles that I had previously adopted in my life quite rigorously. And it's just, built momentum and legs since then. I think I got back to my first GA meeting on day seven. And, uh, yeah, look, 119 days after that, so day 126, I've probably done about 175 meetings online in this time frame. It's been one. And, look, not by not because, I mean, the compulsion, again, has been removed. This is just all about connection and, well, yeah, arresting the illness at a day at a time. I will, I will say that. I will state that. Most definitely identify with that. But it really has been about connection and 
you know, getting out of my own head, applying some spiritual principles to, you know, to deal with this malady and pave a very new, new path forward again in life where, where the, my sense of freedom and recovery is a lot deeper than it's ever been. So how easy did you find it swapping between the two behaviours, I guess, that once, once you acknowledged the problem, was it easier to start living differently? It was for me, yeah. And the reasons why is because I'd had all this wonderful experience before. I'd done a lot of the hard digging around my trauma back in 2017. Now, when I experienced some infidelity from another person in my relationship back in 2019, March, like, and I abandoned myself, you know, that's on me. You know, did I reach out for the appropriate help at that time? No, I did not, and I should have, and I acted very, very poorly and created a codependent situation too. So I had to take rigorous stock of where I was at, Bill, and that's exactly what I did as soon as I found myself back on my own, away from this really tough emotional state and space and place. Look, I had some very, very challenging stuff to deal to deal with from a living situation, employment, again, legal stuff, which is kind of only to stop. But, you know, from an emotional standpoint, a lot of things fell away from, from, from my being very, very quickly because I was back in a place that was called, that's called GA, but also employing a number of modalities in my life that really strengthen my holistic approach to recovery. Yeah. So how important was it for you not to try and control the other people, the other person or the other people? Well, again, my experience when I left, <laughs> I guess when I, when I found myself out of that situation, by sheer proximity alone, I no longer have to experience the, the energy of that person, that place, that thing. It's just me with me. I'm, I'm left with myself to consider, hey, Grant, right, what are you going to do now, mate? Because, <laughs> you know, you've gone through this massive period of pain and suffering, and I think you know why. What are your viable options? What has your experience been? In, in your right mind. Okay, yeah, let's get, let's get back to GA. Let's get back on your yoga mat. Let's practice your meditation and your breathing. It is exercise. It is food. It is your use of time. It is your connection to your friends, your family, the fellowship, and all the other things that sit under that, the, all, all the little wonderful experiences that we can have on a day-to-day basis when we surrender to our innermost selves that um, we, are, we are powerless over something. And... You know, you get, you, when you immediately give up the fight against everyone and everything, my goodness, things become so much easier. It's, it's fourth and fifth dimensional. You know? Yeah, you've got so much more energy. Exactly. So what's it like um, going to Zoom meetings compared to going to face-to-face meetings? This is a really good one for me because from doing the steps last time and then, and then going and travelling around, like I, I developed this real um, desire to send people video messages anyway when I was traveling. And um, so this is three years ago. So I've kind of done this sort of sort of thing for the last three years as I've been out, out and about. And invariably my responses have been good. So Zoom is wonderful for me because I've been, um, like I said, 175 meetings plus in the last 126 days. I've gone global. I've made some amazing connections overseas. Um, don't get me wrong, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a very tactile, affectionate person and there's nothing that can substitute for a hug, a handshake, you know, uh, being, in, being in the close proximity of other people. But 
you know, I jump on meetings whenever I like by choice and I see my family. And, you know, that family is made up of literally hundreds of people between all of, all of the uh, Australia, or Melbourne meetings and, and some selected ones in, in places that I've had frequently travelled to in the past, like San Francisco. You see, I see people every every day, like like you, more than even, like I'm, I spend so much time by myself and I'm really comfortable with solitude. But seeing people, seeing their smiling faces when you see people regularly as well when they come back, it's very, very powerful. It's better than Instagram, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't watched TV for, for God knows how long because I've just chosen to do other things. Um, but that, that was always reflective of my recovery too. Yeah. So what about newcomers to meetings and stuff who, who come in? Coming back, it, it's quite different than going to a meeting first time, but there's a lot more, a lot of people still joining GA and other fellowships online. How can the fellowship support those people now under Zoom. Yeah, look, I've seen a lot of people come in. I mean, I've obviously been one that's come back in, but people come in, come come and go. It's 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 clearly up to the individual. But you know, there are meetings on every hour, multiple you know, multiple meetings on every hour of every day across the globe, and you know, all of a sudden, meetings have become more accessible than they've ever been. And there are a lot of people too that. You know, that I, I'm still connected with that haven't that have been part of the fellowship, but they really don't like Zoom, so they don't attend. And therefore, whatever they're doing is whatever they're doing. Don't know. It's okay. That's not my choice. But for new members coming in, again, the the messaging is definitely around. You know, keep coming back and you know, give this a try if you identify. But my messaging specifically is yes, definitely. You know, put your seat, put yourself in a chair, and give this program. Say, I don't know, give it ninety days if you identify as being an addict. Connect with people. You know, do the suggested things that the literature says. And this is not from a holistic perspective, but just from a GA perspective. Give it a go. Put your put your bum on a seat. Put your screen on. Listen. Connect, and practice some things, and gather some gather some wisdom. You know, because there's definitely there's a massive difference between abstinence and recovery like I've experienced being abstinent an abstinent asshole I um you know suffering an abstinence to different levels of recovery and um it's a very it's a very tricky one Bill but you know there's there's very little chance of recovery if you don't exhibit some sort of psychic change away from you know the the addictive uh, maladaptive coping choices that we can make yeah you're right you're right there one of the things I've noticed in meetings is with newcomers and, and even people who join your meeting is that there's no way of connecting with them necessarily. I mean, say at, at a face-to-face meeting, you can talk to them afterwards, but in a Zoom meeting, there isn't that ability to sort of talk to people as easily. Do you, have you experienced that? Uh, no, I haven't because you know, I'm a very... Um, I'm very communicative and I, I really like the connection. So like I, I do message, you know, I call, I video call, I send messages, video or text to people all over the place. And that's been a, a, a big part of my recovery. And um, again, some people come, some people go and that's okay. Uh, it's part of my, part of my approach to my own recovery. Sure. I've, I've actually still spent plenty of time with members on a physical basis as well over the last um probably three months in particular or since lockdown has, has eased. 
So where to from here? What's your your plan? And I'm going to say in, in fellowship, you, you don't have a plan, but you have a plan. You have a you have a keep doing this. There's there's things I've got to do. Uh, so what's on your roadmap? Yeah, my road. Wow, this is that's such a good question because it's it's very it's very vast. Um, like you know, I, I won't be stepping away from the fellowship. I treat it the data time um, from a connection point of view, and I would encourage anyone that's that's suffering or in pain and doesn't know where to turn to to turn to GA, give it a go. But you know, the support of a psychologist, the right people in your life, some many other modalities that I haven't spoken about today, which I think are equally as important. It requires a big change, but for me. Yeah, look, I, I employ to the best of my ability all the, the GA, um, spiritual principles, as well as many other modalities to um, enhance my recovery. And as a result of doing the steps again in a very short space of time, because I wanted to clear out the last three years of crap. You know, that's given me a sense of happy, being happy, joyous, and free again. But again, got to maintain, do the maintenance steps, maintenance work, you know, learn, keep learning, keep an open mind, open heart. I don't know where I'm going to be proximity-wise. You know, I'm, I'm open to uh, to exploring again. <laughs> you know, and, and I think as you probably said, yeah, I think you saw post uh, last meeting, like I did a lot of travelling and whatnot, and that was part of my recovery. But, you know, one thing, I won't be doing is stepping away from the fellowship or my other modalities. And, you know, if I do for some reason, you know, I, which I don't want to do, but I've got plenty, I've got all the experience behind me to say, hey, mate, you know what's good for you, keep building on it. And for me, being a service is, is, is a real key, but I've still got plenty of things to deal with on life on life's terms, but I can do that appropriately and adequately today with the help of many, many people, places and things, and I'm grateful. So who knows, Bill? We'll see. Okay. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on 03 9696 or go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Grant for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped him. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week uh, when we'll feature a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.